Hello and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Krauss. So, uh, surprise, I have three episodes for you this month. As you can see, this is number three. I hope this makes up for missing March and April. Um, I think I can stick to this one episode per month thing from now on, but occasionally I'll have to make up for missing months with more episodes in other months. So uh, this interview uh, with Nick Santos actually came about uh, because I bumped into him at a party uh, at my friend Kyle's house. Uh, thanks, Kyle. And uh, usually the conversations I have with people at parties when we talk about work is uh, uh, pretty sparse. You know, they say, what do you do? And I, I say, <laughs> I work on developer tools and programming languages, and that's where the conversation ends. But this time... Um, when I said that, Nick said, oh, me too. Uh, and, and we were both kind of shocked uh, to meet someone else at a party pretty, pretty randomly. You know, I will say, to be fair, that this is a party uh, thrown by a computer science engineer. Uh, and many of the people who were at the party also studied computer science um, with him or worked with him at other companies. So um, we all are engineers. But still, within engineering, DevTools is a pretty uh, small niche. By way of introduction, Nick Santos studied computer science and math at Dartmouth College. He was a staff software engineer at Google, where he worked on consumer projects like Google Docs. Uh, and he was also a software engineer at Medium, where he worked on the editor experience. And now he's the CTO of Windmill Engineering, a dev tools company that brings a live editing experience to your build process. Please enjoy. So I'm here with Nick uh, from Windmill Engineering. Uh, we're here today in New York City uh, at Workbench, which is a venture capital firm uh, and also a co-working space. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Steve. Um, so I guess to start with, uh, I want to talk about um, why you started this company, uh, like what brought you to it, and uh, yeah, the background, what you guys do. Okay. Um, how best to approach this? Uh, so Windmill is a DevTools company. Um, we believe that engineers spend too much time waiting for DevTools. How I got into DevTools, uh, I'm not from a DevTools background much. Uh, most of my career has been on consumer work tools. Uh, I worked on Google Spreadsheets for a long time. I worked on Forms. Uh, after that, I worked at Medium working on their editing tools and their writing tools. Uh, one of the common themes of all of that was that JavaScript tooling was really terrible. Uh, that just working with a large team on a large code base in JavaScript was always a pain. So we ended up writing a lot of our own tooling. Uh, I ended up working a lot on a tool called Closure Compiler at Google, which was a JavaScript type checker. Um, and through Closure Compiler, I ended up meeting uh, my co-founder at Windmill, who also worked a lot at DevTools at Google. And one of the things that we talked a lot about is how the DevTools experience today is kind of sad and requires you to keep a lot of state in your head about what the, how the tool works. Um, the classic example being Git. Git has all this complicated state about where you are in the rebase and where you are in a branch. Uh, and we really wanted DevTools that were a little bit more visual and a little bit more like like Google Docs or Google Spreadsheets, where you can just lay on a web page and start typing, and it starts giving you feedback immediately. Um, and that's kind of how we got here. Cool. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, how you were inspired by the consumer work and, and the developer work together. You wanted the, the 
developer experience to be similar to the consumer experience. I think we're, a lot of us are motivated by, by that sort of vision. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear more about your experience on Google Closure and how it relates to what you're doing now. Oh boy, Closure Compiler is a interesting project in the sense that it grew very much out of what we needed at the time, that it became way bigger of a project than we expected. It was very much, hey, we have this team of you know, dozens of engineers working on this JavaScript code base. They're constantly making mistakes, constantly passing the wrong arguments, and, and mistakes that like, hey, some team is developing a sharing library, and another team is using that sharing library, and the sh team that's using that sharing library is passing the wrong argument, in, and they're in an argument about, OK, whose fault is this? Uh, and they're, so They're in an argument about arguments? That's, that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and so Closure Compiler started out as, okay, let's just push everyone to start writing the, their types and comments. And then after the fact, we're going to rigorously write a type checker for the types in the comments. And that way, people can start writing their types now. And we will gradually, over time, be able to check them better and better. Got it. So it sounds um, similar to TypeScript and the, you know, that, that kind of movement. Yes. Uh, we started Closure Compiler in 2006-ish. We started the type checker for Closure Compiler in like 2006 or 2007-ish, when everyone thought that ES4 would be a thing. I don't know if you know the history of ES4. No. ES4 was this, this proposal for JavaScript to add type checking to JavaScript, mm. to the main language. Wow. Uh, that was really exciting, but just never got released. Huh. That's fascinating. I never heard about that. There is a spec. I'm sure you can find a PDF somewhere. Uh, it was a. It was very ambitious. Maybe someday there will be real types in JavaScript. Uh, Closure Compiler was very much the seat of the pants. We're like, we're just kind of taking the spec. Okay, we got a spec. Let's let's start just implementing it now. Maybe a four will happen. Cool. I get it. Uh, TypeScript had the benefit of uh, being more well designed up front, mm -hmm. more flow. Facebook project yep. flow.js. Totally. I, I don't want to say that, yeah, Closure Compiler was certainly not as well engineered as either of those projects. Let's talk more. I want to get um, a better understanding of what you're working on. So sure. what, what, is, yeah, what, is, what problem does Windmill solve, and um, how, does it, how does it try and solve it? Uh, so we believe that developers spend too much time uh, just searching in the dark to try to figure out if the change they just made broke anything. Yep. That uh, you've made a change, you don't know if it's going to work or not, and you have to figure out that out. Mm -hmm. uh, what Windmill does is we, you describe your build pipeline, and you try to describe it in as small units as possible. And we try to figure out what you should be running next for your next 10 seconds. The next 10 seconds of development. Interesting. Yeah, so when I first heard about this, I thought it sounded very similar to like uh, continuous integration testing in the cloud. Um, but instead of any increments of like every commit, it's every control S save. Right, exactly. Yeah, every time you save, we try to say, we're going to upload your change to the cloud and try to figure out, okay, based on what you just changed, what should you, you should be running. Um, yeah, there's kind of a branding problem in the sense that like, Continuous integration is taken, and it's actually continuous. It's more continuous than continuous integration. So what are you going to um, call it? Live integration, maybe. 
Live integration is a, is a cool one because it kind of evokes the kind of live reload workflow mm -hmm. that yep. we really want to evoke, that we really admire. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, it feels also very, you know, Google Docs-y, um, you know, that you're patching changes very live. Mm -hmm. I guess you, you still wait for save. You don't do it uh, as We still a, wait for save. You don't yes. wait for there, not just on keystrokes. Yes. That makes sense. We could. <laughs> you could. We, we've talked about it. There's got to be a way to do it. Maybe someday. So um, one obvious advantage of using a, like a cloud-based build system on, on every save is that you know it could speed, it definitely speed things up. You can parallelize things, mm -hmm. and it's, you mentioned that you could also order things smarter. How how does that work? So right now we look at the file that you just edited, and we try to figure out first of all what does that affect, which is. Sometimes depends on language is a very basic analysis. And and what is the likelihood that based on what you just edited, that something will break? And try to figure out, I mean, this is kind of, uh, I hate to say machine learning because I think machine learning is so overblown right now, but like machine learning has this great concept of information gain that like, what is the amount of information I expect to get from this action? And figuring out, okay, what's what is the thing that can get me the most information now? And trying to figure out and, and then running that. So you're figuring out which tests to run? Yes. And so how are you connecting a test to a file? So right now we look at we look at just basic dependency information is the first thing when we have it. Um, so like a test will depend on a file. You'll you'll see that it calls methods that are in the file? Right. Um, or like a, a, for, for Go, for example, Go has a tool called GoList, which lets you say, does this test depend, what does this test depend on? And we can figure out the depends on this file. Um, there is a kind of a, a statistical approach, which is just saying, hey, if you're editing this file and we're seeing every edit, we have this stream of data and we can say, hey, we can see that you've made a bunch of changes to this file, but it's never broken this test. We're, we can be pretty confident it doesn't break that test. And there's, you know, some, you know, statistical kind of fuzz factor that you can add in there to make sure that it still runs at some time and just double checks. But over time, we can build confidence of whether it changes this file will change this, uh, to change this test. Got it. Yeah. So you're bringing machine learning to uh, the build, the build process and testing. I would say we are. Yeah. I would also, but I would clarify that it's 80s machine learning, not not deep learning. Got it. Cool. Yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I like your insistence on like anti bubble and anti hype. Like, you know, th this is simple technology that's going to make things better. This is like I'm not trying to promise something that I can't deliver. There, there's no uh, Alexa. Uh, what is it? Uh, Samantha from that that movie. I like, yeah, it's it, not going to be like a human intelligent person. It's just very basic. Yeah, we are. We we think this is a basic statistical tool that we can use to kind of take it this out. Got it. Um, so um, you're running this whole company to make the feedback loop tighter for developers. Why is the feedback loop so important to you or developers? I mean, I think you're a Brett Victor nerd. I am not so much of a Brett Victor yeah. nerd, but I definitely believe that in all of things, not just in programming, that just, just feedback makes people better, that feedback has made me better, and that it is important that feedback be instant. Um, for yeah, for anything. Yeah, um, I like 
one, and you're definitely right. I'm a Brett Victor nerd and, and this is his thing. And so I'm all about it. Um, one, just to hold the other side of the argument, I saw a study that showed that um, if you have a, a GUI based interface, or this is like an analogy, if you have a GUI based interface or a keyboard based interface, um, even if uh, the GUI based interface is faster to like accomplish a task and you can like time the tasks, uh, people will say that the keyboard interface feels faster even though it's like empirically slower because it just feels more fluid than moving. But you don't, because you, you don't notice the time it takes to like do multiple keystrokes, but you notice the time it takes to like move your mouse and it just feels clunkier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes I wonder when I'm like frustrated when things take time to build or run tests, I wonder, is this frustration like uh, worthy, you know, like I, like I am frustrated and that's a problem we could fix, but like, is it actually slowing me down or does it feel slow? Is it, per- is it a perceived problem or a real problem? Yes. Yes, that is an important distinction. Um, the perceived latency versus real latency. Um, I'm not sure. I have to think about that, I think. Okay. Uh, I think we believe to some extent that there is a value in having uh, the feedback be automatic mm-hmm. and uh, being able to say, hey, the feedback is automatic and we're pushing the data towards you before you need it or before you think to ask for it. Hmm. Uh, so I, would, I think I would make the distinction between uh, you, uh, the, GUI, the GUI versus the command line interface, which I think is a separate access than the interface of is the feedback uh, automatic or do you have to ask for it? Did it push versus pull? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I could see. I could see that distinction. So it sounds like you're working on both pro- sets of problems. You're making the feedback push, and you're making the feedback uh, easier to get. Yes. I think Windmill has a lot of interesting problems in kind of distributed build system space, but we also believe that there's a very difficult UI problem. That is, hey, we're pushing five tests running in parallel at you, and that can clearly be overwhelming, or you know, 100 tests running in parallel at you. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be Clippy for, for testing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Clippy. There are we, a lot of developers who are talking about um, I, like, I've talked to a lot of people who are working in this space who, who call what they do Clippy for developers. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I hate I, that. Yeah, why, yeah, I hate that. why do you hate I that? Mean, Clippy, to me, Clippy is the example of pushing data that's not relevant mm-hmm. and not useful and pushing it be, being too aggressive. And to me, there's a, a very much a UI problem of trying to figure out, based on what the user is doing right now, uh, what they want. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we have an answer for it yet. Uh, I mean, the closest example I can give is, is maybe the medium text editor. Uh, there are no, there is no bold tool on the screen. There's no bold button on the screen that you use in medium until you select something. Yep. And then the bold button appears. And we, we thought a lot about how that interaction should work and how that should surface. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. That's an example of a solution to a, a, a UI problem. Yes. Then we try to make sure that the tool 
that if you put if the tool is on the screen at all times, that is a UI failure. Mm, I see. That really we need to kind of watch your actions and to try to figure out when you need the tool. That's fascinating. Gesture to see you need the tool. I never thought about that in Medium that there's no bold button, but it's there when I want it. But it, but it is, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I wonder if other Word document editors are going to adopt that UI. There are some, I think, that do, but yeah. Fascinating. Um, so uh, there were a few words uh, that, it, that I read in your some of your initial blog posts that I, was, I, I want to dig into. Um, one of the words is uh, reactive, that you're building like a reactive system for build tools. Um, another is um, the difference between imperative and declarative build system languages. Um, so you take your pick, which one do you want to address first? I'm curious how you define reactive, since reactive is a big buzzword now. I think it's a buzzword that I'm very excited about, to be clear. Mm. Um, I think I just stole the word from your blog post. Oh, okay. Good, um, good, good. You can read the blog post then. Uh, reactive, reactive to me just means I update one thing and the thing that depends on it update without me having to tell it to update. Uh, and there's kind of various definitions of what that means. D but... Dependencies managed automatically. So yeah, it just kind of re rebuilds without without being told to do so. Rebuilds without being told to do so, okay. Uh, and just having that automatic, I mean, that's, that is to me is like the, the React JS kind of definition of it. Is yep. You update a model, the view changes, uh, that seems to be, yeah, where these tools should go. And so, um, how do you architect a reactive build system? That's a good, that's a very broad question. I, I think it's, I'm not sure I even know how to answer that in a, in a pithy way. Okay. Uh, is that, maybe I'm misunderstanding what you guys are doing. You're not doing something like how, no, how does we are building a reactive build system, but I'm not sure if I can summarize how you how you build one or if even I mean, how you're there's doing it. there's definitely the the so there's a couple of schools of thought here. Okay. How how much do you know about Basil? Basil, uh, I think you. I read your blog post on it. Yes. So Basil is Google's build system for Go. Or just for everything? For everything. Oh, oh right. Google builds in a huge repo. Uh, all the code is in one repo. And everyone uses the same build system. And that build system is Bazel, modulo some letters that change. Um, and uh, the idea is that you describe a build graph. Yeah. And that build graph exists in, in very much an abstract way. And, and they are literally modeling this build graph, and then they follow the DAG. They follow the DAG? They follow the DAG. The DAG, yes. Uh, the the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Totally. Uh, we think that might be the way to build build systems. We are not convinced that it's the way to build build systems. One of the things that Windmill is experimenting with is this is this is going to be a little bit bananas crazy right now, but maybe you don't have to have the whole DAG in memory. Maybe you don't have to have the whole build graph in memory. Maybe you can explore that 
you start with a point and you say, okay, maybe I have two inputs. What if I assume, just for the sake of argument, that one of these, these inputs is okay? Mm-hmm. And just rebuild the other one. Or maybe the better way I would put this is that not only do you not have the whole build graph in memory, but one of the great insights in computer science that we keep rediscovering over and over again is branch prediction. That is, you're, you're giving me a puzzled look. Yeah, what's branch prediction? Branch prediction is when the hardware guesses what the output of this if statement will be and starts executing on the assumption that it is true or on the assumption that it is false. Hmm. The hardware makes the prediction. Yes. Based on? Um, you would have to talk to a more hard, uh, it, 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 it sometimes records, it records the history, right? So like similar, like, like statistical machine learning type things? Not, yeah. Not that sophisticated. Not, not that sophisticated. I mean, this is, this is the great insight of the Java VM too, right? That, hey, the Java VM, if you do like an if statement check, right? It, or if you do like a virtual method call, it will say, hey, I'm pretty sure I know what this is. I'm going to jump assuming that it probably is what I think it is, and then I can rewind if I have to. Interesting. So like if you run a loop a thousand times and every time the if statement is false, it like, it kind of, it'll just, it'll, yeah, I see. Right, if you know the loop is gonna run a thousand times, you don't really have to do the if check. You can just keep running the loop and then, oh, you went too many times, let's, let's back up. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, I think build could could benefit a lot from this kind of thing in the sense of like, hey, 90% of the time you're running a test against the database, you don't actually need to restart the database. Interesting. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you can just say, I'm just gonna leave the database up and I'm gonna run the test again. And in parallel, I'm going to restart the database and run the test. And maybe I was wrong when I left the database up. Maybe the database really does need to restart from scratch uh, to make the test work. But now I can get faster feedback by just assuming everything's okay. Interesting, yeah. So yeah, you're using compilation techniques that normally were used for like hardware compilation of code, but like kind of more in the cloud. You're using similar ideas, but different like compile target. Yeah, the, the idea is, I mean, I guess this is an idea from from like, yeah, bytecode execution mm-hmm. of, Hey, could we could could we just treat a build system as a as an inter, as any other interpreter, and do all the kind of cool techniques that we think of in any other interpreter to kind of speed things up? In the common case, like certainly for correctness, there's there's a very there's a big difference to me between uh, what you're willing to do for correctness versus what you're willing to do for fast feedback, and those can actually be separate pipelines. Oh, interesting. I kind of want to dig into that. Yeah, so what, why, why are those distinct? Correctness versus feedback? Because you can cheat. If you're, if you're not worried about correctness, you can cheat, right? Mm. Isn't correctness important for feedback? That's a good question. I think it's, it's more of like, hey, uh, we can get you feedback quicker and uh, we will eventually get you the correct feedback. And uh, maybe we can, communicate you to you in some way that, hey, this is this is what we think is going to happen. 
Like, we think this error is going to happen. And in a lot of cases, it will be like, hey, this is, this is going to fail. We're pretty sure this is going to fail. Mm -hmm. Or we ran compile first without rebuilding the dependencies uh, because we think that that's the smart thing to do right now. Got it. So you're giving really fast feedback, but it's not 100% sure correct. And then like, you know, if I, if I wait a little bit, then I'll, I'll get like the, the extra cor the correctness guarantee. Or you could just look at the error message and see, like maybe a classic example, uh, do, do you program in Go at all? No, I've never programmed in Go. Okay. Have you ever used protocol buffers? No, no. Or Thrift? I'm sure okay. listeners so, have. Anyway, suppose you have suppose you have some code, some JavaScript code, okay. list it, or JavaScript or Go, whatever, but you depend on some generated code. Okay. So maybe your grunt build system rebuilds the generated code each time, or does the transpilation each time, because that's what it has to do for practice. Yep. But actually, you don't need to do that. Like Most of the time, the transpilation will succeed, and most of the time, it will just it, it will sure. just have the same results. Yep. Uh, OK. And oh, I see. So you don't need to do that step. Right. Yeah, yeah. And if you see an error message related to, say, the, you know, the generated code, OK, you're, you're like, oh, yeah, it, it, it's still regenerating that part of it. And so that's why those error messages are showing up. Um, yeah, like any of the, I think, like I said, this is the crazy banana pants kind of uh, uh, build systems that we're not even really doing yet, but like we are excited about if you have a cloud-based build system, there's a lot of cool things to explore. Yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm getting excited about the idea of like kind of sharing things like between colleagues somehow. Uh, like if, if it, it's like it can detect that you're building the same sorts of files as colleagues, it like can just share the fact, you know, share the results from a task. Yes. Is there yes, a, what, that is what, another big one. What's another like exciting example? Um, yeah, the sharing results is a good one. Uh, the sharing, uh, to me, there's also the kind of the sharing, uh, yeah, sharing artifacts, which is the way I would describe it, but also sharing results. That is, hey, if I build something and it failed, but I don't understand why, I can send that link to a coworker, and the coworker can say, oh, yes, I can look at, because all of this exists in the cloud, I can look at the error message, I can look exactly what's in your code base. Uh, and not have to do the dance of like, oh, I'm going to shove my failing branch up to GitHub and then yeah, yeah. I, copy I think, a bunch of paste and such and stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was just, when you showed me the demo recently, just to describe what I saw to, to everyone who didn't get to see it, um, every time you hit save, it runs all your check, it, like it creates a new URL for you that has all the tests that were run and all the error messages. So there's no like copying and pasting error messages, you just copy copy and paste the, the build link. I guess it's similar to um, when you like submit, um, a, when you push a commit to circle or whatever um, you have in the cloud, you should just send that link to someone. It's that, but for every save. So there's no need to commit. There's no need to worry about Git in order to, to share links. Right, that we can just do it automatically for you. And, and yes, and the best part about doing it on every save is you can say like, oh, I broke this. When was the last time it, it succeeded? Like, has it been broken for a while? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm excited about a lot of those possibilities, mm -hmm. rather than having to explicitly create checkpoints. Uh, it's more of the, I mean. Fascinating. Have you, have you used uh, Glitch? Yes. 
So Glitch has this live reload, this live mode that I'm actually super excited about, where you can kind of rewind back to a project and see the rewound state, which mm -hmm. I, I'm, yeah, which I think is just, oh yeah, that's that's exactly like Google Docs, like the the rewound. It's yes. the same, and you guys can do that too, given that you have every save. Yes, I guess you can't do keystroke by keystroke rewind. We can't do keystroke by so we can do every yeah we can be save by save rewind. Cool. I guess on the downsides of running the cloud, I did some research into Kite, which you're, a lot of people are familiar with. Um, it's it's similar in that they store uh, the user's code in the cloud. And I saw on Hacker News and just in a lot of places there was a lot of backlash against Kite. Well, for other reasons too, but I think there was a lot of um, negative response for like ah like I don't want my code in the cloud like that's insecure. Um, what what are the, your thoughts on? on just like the downsides of, of code in the cloud and how to overcome those. This was the hacker news discussion. So this is, this is something we hear a lot, that there are definitely some companies who don't want to store their code in the cloud. Um, we think that is not the way the world is going. Do you have um, an on-prem solution? Like, or we are a very early startup. If someone comes to us tomorrow and says, we will throw money at you to give us an on-prem solution, we so will figure it out. You'll do that too. Okay, I got it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so you could do it either way. But um, you, you, you think the, the, like everything's moving to the cloud, GitHub's in the cloud. You know, it's, it's like a myopic view. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm actually super interested in the on-prem space and how that space seems to be evolving as yeah, when I worked on Docs, uh, Docs had some interesting, we call them geolocation problems of people who want their data to be restricted to a certain geographic data region, right? Somebody who only wants their data to be in a certain data center or someone who doesn't want their data to be a certain country. We won't, we won't describe specific countries uh, involved in this. Um, and this, this would be like a company, like, like a Fortune 500 company would say, we don't want our data in Turkey, whatever. I'm just making up a country, and you and you'd be like, okay, like we'll like add you to the list of like, is it? And they're like a paying customer, is that? Or like, could I contact Google and say like, I don't want to get it stored in California? And it'll... I think if you were enterprise customer of like Google Apps, you can set restrictions. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know how it works now, but I, I it, it's interesting to me. There is there's definitely there are definitely some people who believe that on-prem will be a thing for the foreseeable future. And what will end up happening is that you will have these virtual private clouds <laughs> and uh, any software as a service will just say, great, I'm on Kubernetes. I can deploy yeah, to yeah, your yeah. cloud if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. It'll, it'll, the interface will be the same. And like it'll be seamless whether or not it's your cloud or, or their cloud. It, it's, it's seamless either way. Yes. I'm, I'm super interested in that vision. If that vision of the world comes to fruition, I think that will be, I will be surprised by it, but it will still be super interesting. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Because at the end of the day, it'll still be like on Amazon's cloud, probably. But you know, I guess if you want to buy a computer, you can buy computers. <laughs> um, yeah, there's also the, the the other interesting question is if we will have a, yeah a, a couple of clouds. We'll be like Coke and Pepsi. If there's like two clouds, or if just ends up just random real estate companies get into coasting clouds. I'd, it's not a space I'm a, a lot involved in, but I just I like hearing about it and gossiping about it. Cool. 
Um, so it, I, I find it fascinating that you're in the build tool space, um, particularly just randomly. I, I had a recent experience working, uh, doing some contracting work for a company, um, and I got like up to speed with their build, build tool system. And um, it was just a frustrating, frustrating like six hours, like learning their commands, uh, th things wouldn't compile, uh, it was just like their, um, the thing that watched files wouldn't work. It was just like a whole nightmare. Uh, so I'm like really excited to find someone who's like trying to make this experience better. Um, another, another thing to mention is I find, I think that I particularly don't like build tools like more than other engineers. Uh, like I, I run this project uh, for, for kids. I make this, this online programming language called Woof and it, it's, it has like logins and stuff. It, it's, a, it's like a website, uh, like a normal app, um, but I like, refuse to have a build tool. It's like just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript files on GitHub pages, and then there's Firebase. I, like, I, just, I hate build tools that much that I, and, and a few times it's bit me. Not ha not being able to like import files and stuff like that, so I've like tried to add build tools, and every time I get an hour or two in, and I'm like, I hate this. This is the worst, and I just stop. So I thought you'd be a good person to explore my hatred and like terrible experiences with build tools. With this is super interesting. Uh, can I ask you to a little bit explain more? Do you have you used like a JavaScript linter uh, or a CSS linter? Yeah, yeah, I have. Okay. The linters are fine. I, I don't have a bad experience, especially when they're integrated with the um, with the text editor, and, yes. like the, and they show up in the gutter. I have no problem with that. Yeah. So let's dig into that. So you're not opposed to build tools, then? You you do use a linter. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Okay. So what are, what's what do you not like about the build tools that you dislike? Um, build tools usually there's like a lot of frustration involved installing the build tool is like a headache for every, everyone involved. Um, so that's like one big pain point. Uh, that could take hours. Mm -hmm. And then s configuring the big build tool isn't a one-time cost. Like once it happens, like they're immediately, like they're like constantly problems uh, and you have to like reconfigure it. So that's like another series of problems. And then I think there's like a set of abstraction choices that the creator of the build tool makes that like don't always make sense to me. Uh, and so like understanding their way of thinking, yeah. Is that, are you getting a sense of why I'm so allergic to them? Yes. Yes. Because the app itself is a tool that people use to learn to code, I have a lot of newbies who want to make it better. And uh, I think it's a good project for that. And in order to, there's like one piece of the code that needs to be compiled by Babel. And so like, that's like the one thing that needs to be installed and, and run. And, and I like made that um, compromise. <laughs> um, and even that causes like a whole headache, just like running this one Babel command. Yes. So um, anyways, I'll let you. I, I totally agree with that. There is so much, to me, there's so much about using build tools that is being a sysadmin for your own machine. Yes. Um, every time we onboard someone on the windmill, we have to go through the whole Python 2 versus Python 3 dance. Yeah. And there are just some things on my machine that are Python 2 and some things that are Python 3. And, and everyone wants to manage it with PYN for whatever the new fangled thing is. I I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be a system man. That, that's not why I came into this industry. So how, are we, how, how like, it, it, sometimes it feels like, it, like this is an unsolvable problem. Like, 
you know, you're, you're combining a lot of different languages and they're changing dependencies like uh, build, and build tools kind of like fill in the gaps of where languages kind of leave off or connect to each other. Yeah. Can we ever fix? But the, so the, the problem, the problem is exactly is that you're running build tools on your own machine. That's, that's the first problem. And because the build tools all have to live on your own machine, they all have to coexist on your own machine in a way that once we start running build tools in the cloud, which is what I'm most passionate about, uh, is like, oh, right, you can run uh, the Go compiler in one container and the BabElgin compiler in a different container. And they don't actually have to live on the same. Um, yeah, so that sounds like a dream. Solution. But now I'm wondering, like, but I actually want to see the result. Like, running the tests in the cloud, that's fine. But what about, like, I want to interact with my whatever I, code I wrote. I want to, like, you know, like have a Repli experience. It, it is, are you, like, sending back, uh, like, how, how, how am I interacting with my code? You know, like, just because the tests run in the cloud, does, like, that mean I don't have to build anything on my local machine ever? Is, is that the world you're, you're building towards? Yes. Interesting. Yes. It, okay. I, I pretty strongly feel that we will, we are moving towards a future where the code will not live on your machine. And there's a question of, to me, the big question is not if that future is, but it's like, what is the path towards that future? Okay. Because, yeah, definitely in the near term, that's not going to happen. Like, we're not, you know. Right now, you're just running tests. You're not, like, running a REPL kind of thing, you know. You, you, you see the, the like, because still, even with Windmill, like, the Windmill that might exist a year from now, I'll still have to also run, I'll have to set up all the build tool stuff on my own machine, too, because I, like, need to interact with it on my machine. Yes. Uh, I think one-year vision, you also have to build on your machine. A five-year vision, maybe you ask Windmill for the artifacts. And, and artifacts said, aren't like quite compiled code, or, or more of, Could be. Could be. You, you ask Windmill for what you need to run the binary on your own machine. OK. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the path looks I, Honestly, I'll, I'll be totally clear with you. I think. Uh, we're trying to figure out at this point, like what are the, what are the baby steps towards that reality? Mm -hmm. And we think tests are a pretty good start. Yeah, there may we may be wrong. Maybe there's another. It's going to be another path. Got it. Okay, but it's, it's I'm glad that you are are moving towards this world where yeah, you, you don't have to be a sysadmin. You don't have to yeah understand. Yeah, I guess it's the sysadmin world in order to be a programmer. Yeah. Yeah, Heroku, I guess, like all the DevOps as a service companies helped move us in that direction. And, and this this is probably one of the last remaining vestiges of programmers are also sysadmins. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely talked to people who believe the future is web IDs. I definitely talked to people who say, no, the future is you're going to keep a persistent VM in the cloud and you're just going to SSH into it all the time. So that's, that's what, what I, that's what what I do. Things. Really? You do this? Well, so oh, you're one of the one well, of the few special Cloud Nine plus like you, Cloud Nine provides like an SSH like box for me, but mm -hmm. like sometimes if I want to like run Docker, I can't run. They they run Docker, so I can't run Docker inside Docker. So like I need to like find my own box. Um, but it's terrible, you know. Uh, like installing, so, like I, I still have to be a sysadmin. Interesting. Yeah. So you still have to do a bunch of install commands to get the totally. VM into a good state. Yeah, yeah totally. Because you because like you you want to install like npm and you want like a different version of Node and then uh, like yeah it's it's like a whole a whole mess. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, one of the bets we're making is, yeah, that you will you will want to run some part of your build process in one container and some part of your build process in a differently configured container. And that a lot of this sysadmin stuff is just making the tools coexist. I'm not sure if that's the right framing, but it will, yeah, I don't know. It's the, I'm excited for the future to see, to see what mistakes we make tomorrow, so to speak. Um, I'm curious what you think the upper limit on like how good we can make or like, I guess, a lower bound on how bad build tools have to be. Like, like how, how good can it go? Or like, where, where is the inherent versus incidental complexity in this space? Uh, like, like, yeah, what, what's like utopia? I mean, there's different visions for utopia. There's the one vision of utopia, which is that, that programming languages of the future look very different than programming languages of today. Um, there's another vision of you have a server and you make a code change and you reload that server and the, just everything's been recompiled and, and it's a new server up. A new, so I reload the server? That is you recompile the complete, you totally recompile the server and bring up a new one uh, every time you, every time you get to save, right? So. In the same way that like JavaScript development works today. Got it, but with. Or live reload JavaScript, not all JavaScript development, but live reload JavaScript and okay, and I think that's one possible vision. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't necessarily have the answer. Interesting. So you, your vision of the future is more um, like programming looks like the languages we have today, but the build tools feel like hot reload React JavaScript development. Where, yeah. yeah. And will I still have to like write a like a makefile-y type build system, or can we some? Or do you think one day we'll be able to get rid of makefiles? Oh, I. Dislike. Oh, we haven't talked at all about makefiles. I I am frustrated with the current state of build tool configuration. File things like the npm. What, what is it for npm? Like JSON, the, the npm JSON package JSON. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of like the Circle CI or the Travis YAML files. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of makefiles. To me, to me, the problem with those all of those systems is they're on the one hand, they're very declarative, which is some nice in some ways, but declarative languages are kind of hard to debug and hard to visualize what's going on. And you have end up having to do a lot of visualization in your head of what's going on. Uh, the windmill build language, which is more just configuring what commands to run, looks very imperative. It looks uh, more like just normal Python you would write on a rainy day. Uh, I don't know if I, I, we like that much better as an approach than rather than trying to like voodoo a, a, a declarative language into YAML, which I see a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, I think, but I, I think there's entirely a, a, a possible ability of like visual build languages, just like being able to kind of see the graph and see the steps yeah. and say, Hey, I want to rerun this step. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and the, you're imagining nodes, kind of like like a DAG, like a, like a, a DAG that you can like add a node, can, like wire it up. It could be a DAG. Some people have pushed back against this. There's there's also one one UI paradigm I thought is just layers, right? You just say you want to build this thing. Here are the layers that you could rebuild, and rebuilding one layer builds all the layers above it. Got it. I, sometimes I think like YAML files kind of approximate this, like you know just. So yes. yeah, and so you just want to make it like just a, a better UI. Yeah, 
I think, yeah, I think gambles are basically not a good deal after this. Interesting. Um, I want to dig into the declarative imperative, uh, hard, hard to reason about, hard to debug thing. Um, yeah, to tell, why, why do you think? So, yeah, walk me through your reasoning on why declarative is harder to uh, debug. Well, let me twist the question around on you. Do you are there declarative languages that you like? Yeah, it, it's that that is that is a good way to think about it because, like SQL, the canonical example of a declarative language, is is a, is a mess to debug. Debugging more or less is like a very breakpointy thing. And imperative makes that very easy to do. So yeah, you kind of have me there. Yeah. Is, that, is that your argument? When you look at declarative languages and you think about the experiences you had, they're bad. So declarative languages are bad to debug. That, that's a reasonable argument. That is, I think that is some of the argument. I think, I mean, CSS is the other big one that people use. And it just took us many, many years to come up with a good debugger for CSS. Um, yeah. I think I think just they're just very difficult to approach, uh, very difficult for new people to learn. Like I just know very few really great CSS engineers or really great SQL yeah. engineers. To make a declarative language successful, you need to be able to have the computer expand it into understandable steps that a human can read and, and process and make sense of. The classic example being the CSS debugger, where it gives you that stack of, oh. hey, here are the rules that I applied in the order that I applied them. And here are the rules that override the other rules. And even though you don't quite understand how it figured that out so fast, you can kind of see the steps. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds similar to uh, SQL, like explain. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever use SQL explain? Nine years. <laughs> Maybe I use it once. I guess the point you're making is that it's like not a very good explanation. It's like not human and readable. I've used SQL Explain. It's it's okay. I don't always understand why it's doing something, or like why it select why it did this step first instead of that step first. Interesting, and that's frustrating to me. To me, to me, it sounds a little bit like declarative languages are trying to build this beautiful abstraction, so you don't have to care about the details. But you're saying that like the abstractions are always going to be leaky, so you need you need someone to make the translation for you, so you can like debug the leaks. Because in theory, we shouldn't have to care. Like, it should just do the smart thing. There should be no problems. Even if the even if the abstraction isn't leaky, even if it's a perfect abstraction, you will still need to understand when you use this abstraction wrong. Mm -hmm. And and you think imperative is the way? Because I feel like there could be a declarative, like you know, like arrow, just saying like, oh, on this line you declared the CSS to be this, but over here you used like important or you know like it, it could declaratively explain to you the issue um it doesn't have to go like well first i did this then i did you know that's interesting wait let's let's talk about that for a second so you imagine like i click on a tree and I ask why does this why is this tree blue mm -hmm. and it traces me back through to like figure out why it's blue is that is that your um, i'm wondering if, we, if the explanation could, could also be declarative as opposed to, to an imperative explanation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so uh, i guess i'm Begs question: Like, what is a declarative explanation? Yeah, I I like that. If that that declarative languages could work if you just had better ways to kind of interact with them and query the results. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. Again, I think you're going back to kind of 
uh, yeah, the Brett Victor approach of just being able to click on something and see like, why is that? What's yeah. the history of that thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so I, I want to talk more about your, the imperative language that you have. Is it truly imperative, um, or or does it just seem imperative? Oh, it's it's truly imperative. Uh, so I'm wondering how do you uh, do concurrent, like how do you paralyze things if it's actually imperative? How does it know what it can paralyze? Sure. So uh, the language we use is called Skylark. Uh, it was built by Google for their build system. It is a subset of Python. Uh, we use it much differently than Google uses Skylark, whereas Google uses it to set up a build graph. We use it where you write a function, and that function takes as input your code base. Okay. Um, and that code base is immutable. And you can do things to that code base, like, say, install a bunch of dependencies. And when you install a bunch of dependencies, you get a new code base, which is the dependencies overlaid on the old code base. Okay. And then you can pass around, okay, now I have my code base with dependencies. Now I can pass that to, say, go build job. Okay. I, I'm, I'm following. Um, it, are there limitations that, like, because the, it's, it's defined so imperatively, you can't make certain optimizations that a declarative build system would be able to make? That is a good question. We think no. There's this when we talk to people about this. The one of the complaints is is that one of the nice things about something like Bazel is that Bazel builds the build graph up front. Mm -hmm. That if you made a mistake, it will be able to tell you because it has the entire build graph. Whereas with our imperative language, it's stepping through a bunch of functions that may or may not schedule runs uh, and or may you know, set up jobs to run and that we may not actually know that your build graph is wired up completely incorrectly until we get for pretty far down the line. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, that, that's a perfect example of, of why you'd want something that's more declarative. Right. The declarative can check up front that like, hey, this dependency doesn't exist, whereas we might we have to like go all the way down yeah. and then realize, oh wait, this this we don't know what this is. Yeah, because you're evaluating the lines of code as you get to them like a normal yes. language. Exactly. Interesting. Um, but I guess you think the benefits outweigh the costs, and so the benefits are that imperative languages are easy to pick up, yes. easier to debug easier to debug. And is there another Yeah, those are the big ones. Yeah, big just ones. much more approachable. Much more virtual. Cool. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I'm curious. To see. I've never. I've, I've. I uniformly dislike build tools. Um, they're also uniformly declarative. Uh, so I'm curious. Maybe. Maybe I would. I would not hate a imperative one. Maybe the whole time you just hated. It. Yeah. Declarative tools. It's interesting because I. I like the idea of declarative languages. It's, it, it seems like a good idea. Do you, were you also someone who, who thought declarative language was a good idea and then you kind of reacted negatively to them? Yeah. Or, you, or you never liked them? I think that's, that's exactly, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a languages nerd. I, I wish declarative languages were better because they seem so cool. When, when you see in the abstract and then when you try to use them, you're just, ah. Oh. Because they're, like, they're dense, they're elegant, they're you know, mathematically yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. And then they're just not fun in practice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You were, have you ever read? Uh, you probably read Worse Is Better, right? 
Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's functional languages, I think, have the same problem. Like, I really, really want to like functional languages, but there are just so many ways to like shoot yourself in the foot, like code up an N, N uh, factorial algorithm accidentally. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, I, it's, it's true. I, you know, like a, a language like Haskell is like my favorite language until you ask me to write some Haskell, and then it's like, never mind. <laughs> Have you ever built anything in Haskell? Like, no. N nothing, nothing that's non-trivial. I, I, I guess, sorry, to, the easier way to say that is I've only built trivial things in Haskell. Yeah, I really like building trivial things in Haskell. It's actually just a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's tough, tough stuff. Um, uh, let's see, a few more, maybe just one or two more questions. Uh, so it seems, it sounds like you're going the for-profit company wrap for this, this project. Yeah. Maybe yes. walk me through, like, have you raised money? What was your thinking to go for-profit? Did you think you consider like other routes? Oh, it's funny. It's funny you put it that way. Uh, we definitely did. A, we spent a bunch of time. We were kind of very interested in this, this idea of kind of live build tools and reactive build tool tools that kind of automatically built as you as you went and built in the cloud. And we thought about what would it be like to do this at a big company, and we just kind of decided this would not. It would it would because it uh, cannibalizes CI in some ways mm -hmm. that we would be competing for resources with CI at a big company, and that would not be a successful way to run this kind of experiment. Uh, and you know, we talked to various people, we just kind of decided, you know what, this is, this is a good thing to start a company around, just to experiment with it, and this is what we're gonna focus on. I mean, to me, that, that has kind of been the advantage of a small company, is that you can just pick a problem, just really focus on it, and not have to worry about uh, uh, competing for resources. Cool. Have you guys raised any money at this point? Uh, yeah, we've raised money. We've raised enough money to to do this for you know a while. Um, do you have a sense of when like launching will happen? Uh, a lot of what we're doing right now is showing it to companies who are interested about in the idea, who are excited about the idea, but are willing to kind of put up with the warts. That I will be very clear that we have a production tool that you can use, but it is not easy to use. It is not really that fun to use. We are still figuring out the UX and still figuring out how to make it a joy to use. Um, so a lot of what we're figuring out right now is how can we make this a tool that a few companies really love using? Uh, and then once we have that, we raise more money and uh, really go out the door trying to grow it to as many people as possible. Uh, we're definitely in the phase as a company of just like doing a lot of product experimentation. And there are certainly things that we built where we're like, yeah, we built this, it's not very good, let's, let's go in a slightly different direction. That sort of thing. Got it, cool. So you're still, still yeah, making something worth trying. Yeah. And then, then you start doing some early testing with users. Cool. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you're not like a huge bread victor nerd like I am. I'd be curious to know, you seem very passionate about this very specific problem. You, you want like, whether it, you would do it at a big company or this company, it seems like you're excited about this problem. I'd be curious to know like, 
you know, where does this motivation and inspiration come from? Did you just have really terrible experiences with the, with the lack of a solution? Or is there some other, one else who's motivating this or inspiring this work? Um, I think this is mostly just working on, on WYSIWYG editors in general for consumers mm. and just realizing, and, and I have a strong belief that it's just the way people interact with the world. People interact with their tools. With their, like, close feedback. Yeah. Close feedback. You instantly see the change you made, and you feel that direct connection uh, to the change you made. That's cool that you were inspired by your work on, yeah, WYSIWYG, Medium. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't want to denigrate the Vector talk, because I think it just gets thrown around a lot as the... Sure. The, the kind of uh, the uh, uh, city on the hill of... Yeah, of course. Cool dev tools demos. Yeah, well, I... I so many of the people I talk to are like overly obsessed with it. So I'm excited to find someone who has different motivations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the more interesting problem is how we get there, which I think he talks about less. Uh, I mean, the classic example is that there, everyone who writes WYSIWYG text editors or WYSIWYG rich text editors specifically, the first thing they do is say, oh, let's store HTML in a database. And they're just, no, no, that's actually a terrible way to write a WYSIWYG text editor because HTML is a terrible editing service. Um, and to me, what, what excites me is, okay, we want WYSIWYG dev tools, but what is the path to get there? How do we store them? How do we, mm, what is the data model that supports that WYSIWYGness? Yeah, yeah. That, that reminds me of one question I meant to ask earlier. Um, uh, what, what, do you, do you Maybe this question doesn't even make sense to you, but what would a language that was designed for like build tools look like? Like it, yeah. Does that that make sense? Oh, <laughs> that is a really good question. I have no idea. Um, I am I am a programming language enthusiast, but I don't feel like I know what that future looks like. I'll let somebody else invent that future. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for spending time with me. This was yeah. great. Steve, this was fun. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Cool.